Hey everyone, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. We are so excited you're here to listen to episode three. We have an exciting episode for you today. We're going to be talking a lot about election engagement. My name's Emily Shields. I'm the executive director of Iowa Campus Compact, and I'm going to let my co-hosts introduce themselves. I'm J.R. Jamison, executive director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact. Hello, J.R., and hello, Emily. Hello, Andrew. Hey, guys. So we're recording on a Wednesday morning. How's everybody today? Great. I'm good. It's yeah. uh, it's fall in Boston. We like that. Mm-hmm. It's fall now in Indianapolis as well. We went from 75 degree weather to now 40, which is pretty typical in Indiana this time of year. Yeah, yeah. We're having that same uh, back and forth still. So, all right. Well, we're going to start out today just talking a little bit about what we've been up to because... October is an exciting time for the Compact Nation, I think. For higher ed in general, it seems like a very busy month. Um, So we've had a lot that we're up to. And Andrew, I was hoping you could just talk a a little bit about the National Civic Action Planning Institutes that just wrapped up. Absolutely. Uh, So some of our listeners may be familiar with an initiative we've had going for about the last year where presidents and chancellors have been signing on to our 30th anniversary action statement, which is online at compact.org slash action statement. And essentially it recommits campuses to deepening their engagement work and specifically to building a campus civic action plan. So we've just held three national institutes, one in New Jersey, one in St. Louis, and one in San Diego, bringing together teams from in those about 80 to 90 universities and colleges to kind of help teams from campuses think about how to build great civic action plans. And then the same thing is happening in many of our states across the country. So I think we've already had like 175 campuses total participating and more to come. So I've, I've been really excited about the creativity and excitement that, that folks are bringing to this task. That's really exciting. Um, we are planning an institute here in Iowa, which you're also joining us for later or early in the new year, actually. So excited to continue the conversation and keep working with campuses on, on planning. It's It's been more fun than you might think planning would be, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, envisioning the future we want, right? That's kind of an exciting mm-hmm. thing to do. So we've, we've been talking a lot about really kind of not just making superficial changes to campuses, but thinking about kind of redesign for mm-hmm. the values and of equity and social justice. And I think that has been getting people fired up. Very cool. And JR, I know you're just coming off of an exciting retreat that I'm, I think you want to talk about. Hopefully you want to talk Absolutely, about it. Absolutely, I want to talk about it. <laughs> so we're coming off of Pen to Paper, which is an academic writing retreat designed for faculty and practitioner scholars who are preparing to write their research or their manuscript ready. We bring all of the engagement journal editors from the field of community engagement and higher education together. It's designed for a small cohort to go through. This year we had 12 folks from West Virginia all the way to Washington State come to Williams Bay, Wisconsin, where we settled in for two days. They had an opportunity to work one-on-one with these editors on their idea or their manuscripts. They went through pitching sessions, they had peer-to-peer feedback, and then they had opportunities to write. What I really enjoy about pen to paper is it provides a platform for those individuals to really flesh out their project ideas and to get feedback from senior scholars in the field. 
what we've seen, this is now year four of pen to paper. We've we, we've heard from these journals that they've actually gotten manuscripts uh, for their publications, which is really great. I serve as a section editor for the International Journal for Research on Service Learning and Community Engagement. And part of my role with that journal is having to recruit folks for the Works in Progress session. And I was able to find two papers that I plan to publish at this event, which is really great for, for that outlet. And so all in all, it was an amazing experience. We had Andy Furco there. And when Andy Furco comes up to you after the event and says, you know, Campus Compact really pulled this off. This was the best retreat experience I've been to in my professional career. You know that we've done something really special in Compact Nation. What a compliment. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's a compliment for all of us in, in, in this work. So Pen to Paper is open to anyone across the country. It's, it's born out of Indiana, but we collaborate with other state directors to make the event happen. And so this year we partnered with Gavin Lutter in Wisconsin, with uh, Robin in Michigan, with Leisha in Ohio, with Natalie in Illinois, and then Laura on my team. Uh, we all came together and, and made it happen. Well, JR, you know I want to host it in my state, so I'm not going to make it awkward and make you commit to that on our podcast. But if you wanted to. We would love to have it in Iowa. You know this about me. I'm a huge fan of Des Moines. Yes, my I favorite t-shirt store in the entire world is headquartered in Des Moines. So any opportunity I get to travel there is one that I cherish. So we expect to see a proposal from you in the future. Sounds good. And yes, everyone, that's Ray Gun t-shirts. Check it out. They do not sponsor this podcast. <laughs> Maybe not, yet. Them. not yet. Not but yet. Not We're yet. giving them shameless plugs until they do. Yeah. Uh, I'll reach out. Well, very cool. That's um, some exciting stuff. So today we are diving into election engagement. Now, I'm a political junkie, admitted. Um, you know, I know it. But even for me, this election is getting old. <laughs> to say the least. So I, I don't know. Where are you guys with, with that? How are you how are you feeling about election engagement, um, you know, in late October 2016? I, uh, so I'm not only a, a political junkie, I'm the kind of person who tried to solve that by becoming a political scientist, which I, I don't know if that helps or hurts, whatever. But I could – I'm a little bit like um, – for me, sports and politics, I think, are connected to the same part of my brain. Uh, and I could I could actually have this go every day, all day of my life. I know that it actually matters, and I'm not excited about some of the substance of it, but I am so engaged by not only the, the questions about, like, who's going to win and all that, but about what's happening, how did we get here, the fact that we're actually having a conversation about what might have led us to this point and how our civic culture got to this point. I actually think that is a good thing. I don't think just talking about it means that we're in a position to fix it necessarily right now. But uh, I, I am, I do feel like something good is happening when we're raising some, some questions about whether we can work together anymore and why it is the case that we can't as opposed to just lamenting it. 
that's a more hopeful and optimistic view. I like it. <laughs> it is hopeful and optimistic. I have to admit it as well. I'm a little dismayed at this point. However, I am hopeful too. I think November 9th will be an interesting day in our country about moving forward. I think the point of us being divided as a nation, as Andrew indicated, is an interesting nod to our culture and where we are today. So I think a lot of healing has to happen after this election. And even though all the negativity that is happening right now, two camps really divided, three and four camps, really, if we look at, at the other parties, you know, I, I really see it as a way for us to have a good conversation moving forward about cultural change in our country and, and how we can come together. Right now, we're so divided, but I think there's a great opportunity that's ahead. Yeah, I think so, too. I think the thing that's gotten to me the most is just the level of anger you know, that's not an, an emotion I like to feel or hear from others. Um, and it's justified sometimes, but it seems to be so dominant in the discourse this time that it's, I find it difficult. Um, I have, you know, taken that and, and chosen to focus more on local elections, <laughs> where actually that's not really the case. You know, I haven't found that to be... Um, you know, I think some of the national tone maybe has not trickled down to, to some local elections, which is good. So our interview this month focuses on this topic of election engagement and specifically the election engagement of college students. So Andrew, you did our interview this month. Do you want to talk a little bit about who we interviewed? Yeah. So I sat down for a conversation with Nancy Thomas, who is the director of the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education in Tisch College at Tufts University. And Nancy is, among other things, director of a study called the National Study on Learning, Voting, and Engagement. And so she's really been digging into, uh, at the level of individual institutions and even like within majors and things like that, who's voting, what do we know about their participation? And, and most importantly, She's been doing out a lot of work to say, what can we learn about what creates an environment in which college students will choose to become involved in the political process through voting and other means? So she's done fantastic work, and, and I'm excited to share that with people. Very cool. Well, let's go to that interview now, and then we'll uh, come back together and talk about what we heard. It is my pleasure to be joined by Nancy Thomas here at Campus Compact World Headquarters at 45 Temple Place in Boston, Massachusetts. Nancy is director of the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education in Tisch College at Tufts University, and has also been uh, part of a kind of traveling road show we've had recently of Campus Compact friends and supporters and experts moving around the country doing institutes with campuses who are developing campus civic action plans. So I've been seeing a lot of Nancy, which is always a pleasant experience. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So... Uh, Let's see. We uh, by the way, yes, our bar is pretty high. And and how so? Well, we saw each other at the Slate Political Gab Fest just a couple of days ago, and uh, I'm expecting you to be David Plotz. David Plotz, that is a <laughs> that is a high bar. So uh, yes, we uh, they were here in Boston, and yeah. we it was terrific to see them. And it's true, I got, I got some tips. Yeah. I think so. We're uh, we're ready to go. That's, we're ready uh, to go. Exactly. Uh, excellent. So. Uh, Nancy, you do a lot of things uh, at Tisch College, and you are both have a long history as both scholar and practitioner in 
advancing democratic participation, both through higher education and more broadly. But I'm wondering if, since Election Day is uh, right before us, whether you might talk a little bit about the National Study of Learning, Voting, and Engagement, uh, what that is and, and why it's something that we all, all of us who know about it have on our mind right now as we head toward Election Day. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So NSOLVE, as we affectionately refer to it, uh, is a study of college student voting. It's the only objective study, really, of civic engagement in higher education. And I say objective because we're able to, to marry enrollment records with actual voting records. Um, and that's a pretty unique feature. In fact, I, identifying the number of people who are eligible to vote in the United States is nearly impossible to do. I think it is impossible to do. Um, but when you have a finite set of enrollment records, as we do, it's doable. So we started the study. We launched it in uh, 2013, and we were hoping for a few hundred campuses. And here we are four years later, three years later, uh, and we have 920 participating campuses. They have to opt in and a database of over eight and a half million college students. Um, it's a very robust study. It's, uh, we're, we're doing two things with it. One is we're providing campuses with individualized reports that tell them what their student, how many students are eligible to vote, how many actually voted, and then we break it down in all sorts of ways, such as field of study, race, gender, ethnicity, if we have it. Um, but the other thing that we're doing is putting out research, and one of the most exciting research projects we have going on right now is uh, using the voting data to identify the sample. We've been visiting campuses where we think there's, a, there's something in the water, a very robust political learning and engagement going on. And we've been visiting those campuses over the last couple of years. So we've got a lot of insights from both of these pretty large, a little bit tiger by the tail studies. And if you, just to, uh, to sharpen up a little bit my understanding, when you're saying that you're looking at campuses where participation is robust, is that just uh, whoever has the highest participation? Or how do, how do you know what's good for a particular kind of institution? Yeah, it's such a good question. Because one of the things you don't want to do with voting rates is you don't want to use them as an absolute measure of quality. And the reason for that is, for example, people will say, oh, Nancy, how do we get the voting rates up? Well, the real answer is you bring in a lot of affluent white women. <laughs> because they have the tendency to vote at higher rates anyway. We don't, we don't want to encourage that. So what we're doing is we are looking at uh, voting rates in the context of the students served. Uh, so we have individualized level data. We have institutional level data that gives us sort of proportions there. And then we also consider the civic data. So what is the context for voting? This is particularly relevant for state institutions, publics that seem to draw from a local population. So if you're in a state that's a battleground state, for example, you're going to have higher voting rates. Maybe not every single election, but if it's an election year where there, that is a battleground state, you're going to have higher voting rates. So we do a regression to uh, factor in all of those features. And then based on that, we measure the difference between what we've calculated as an institution's predicted voting rate with their actual voting rate and the ones with very high distance scores between the predicted and the actual or in a couple of cases, very low uh, voting rates, those are the ones we visit. Our next line of research will be actually randomly selecting campuses and then and not knowing whether they're high or low outliers, and then visiting them and seeing if our 
our emerging findings hold true. Oh, that's interesting. So that's a test for the findings to see whether you can predict yes. a voting rate based on the presence or absence of these factors. So, yeah. so let, I, let's get... I'm a big advocate of qualitative research. I think it's really important to dig for the stories underneath the, the data, uh, the, the hard empirical data. However, I think it's a circular process. You know, you start with the hard empirical data, then you do your, your deep dive with the qualitative, and then you figure out ways to affirm or not confirm those findings. So I would refer to our qualitative findings as emerging or even a series of hypotheses worthy of further exploration. Some of them are easy to affirm because of other studies, but some of them I think still require a deeper dive. So as you're doing this work, going out, identifying these, these high-performing campuses and trying to get a sense of what makes them work, why is it that students in, on those campuses are motivated to go out and participate yeah. through voting, what are you finding? What do those campuses look like? Well, there are many, many political science studies that show various things that get out the vote, such as if candidates reach out to people and shake their hand and say, you got to vote for me, that actually works. Um, or other things like how far away from a campus a voting, a voting place might be. So these things are, are important, but we think those are the technical sides of voting. You know, are people registered? Are they facing barriers to registration? Those are the technical sides of voting. We think, though, that the motivational side of voting, which is sort of a different thing, is really a matter of what's in the water. And we call that campus climate for political learning and engagement. I think it's really important that students see themselves as voters. They see themselves as political actors. They see themselves as having agency and the ability to make change, whether it's local social change or it's policy change on a state, regional, national, or global level. So it's campuses that increase the agency of students that they empower them that seem to have higher voting rates. And again, these are emerging findings. We're going to be exploring this further. So if I were to pick a few features of those campuses, I would say, for example, uh, on the campuses that we visited, all of them, all of the campuses, there are common features to all of the campuses that are high outliers. And one of those features is robust political discussion in every nook and cranny of the institution. This is a very interesting finding. It's not terribly surprising because we have a lot of data that suggests that controversial political conversations uh, increase agency and interest in public life. The thing that's interesting here is that we've been able to uncover some structures, some places where that can happen. And we can give campuses some concrete ideas. Okay, so obviously political conversation should be happening in the classroom, but it shouldn't be relegated to political science departments. Every single discipline has public relevance. Engineering has public relevance. Computer sciences has public relevance. Um, we're doing, we're putting out some discussion guides right now. One of them is going to be on cyber resilience. That's an issue that's very important to meaning the, the sort of protection against the susceptibility to it's, hacking attacks. For exactly, yeah. which of course is such a hot issue right now in this election. And so our computer science students, our engineering students, they should be talking about those issues. 
So how do you embed that, that then into the student experience? One of the characteristics or one of the features that we've seen, which I think has tremendous pro- promise, are these co they're sort of quasi-curricular clubs. So the engineering society or the chemistry club. These are structures that bring together faculty and students, which is another feature that I'll talk about in a minute. And they bring them together in places that allow for these kinds of conversations in ways that perhaps can't be embedded in a curriculum because it's too packed. This is what I hear all the time from STEM majors. Our curriculum is too packed. I can't go abroad or I can't, I can't, there's so many things I wish I could do, I can't, or faculty members saying we can't fit it in. Well, you can fit it into these quasi-structures, and it's an important structure for campuses that serve a lot of commuters and a lot of low-income students or students who have to work a couple of jobs or they have families. These are students who have to pick their time how they spend their time very carefully. And they're going to choose to spend time with faculty when they're given the opportunity. That's their mentor. That's their relationships. That's where they're trying to build their their careers. And we think that this is a structure not only for building careers, but for building citizenship. So rather than, you know, just having those clubs be social clubs or maybe do a service project or something, Make that a place where people come together to talk about public issues relevant to that discipline. Exactly. And I can give you a concrete example. Um, we, we found a couple of campuses that have chemistry clubs. And on one of them, they run a blood drive. But they don't just run the blood drive. They study, why do we need blood? Where's the shortage? Why are we doing this? And as a result of that inquiry, they now run these blood drives pretty regularly. Well, on another campus, the blood drive raised issues about AIDS and uh, tainted blood and whether this had some kind of alienating effect on certain populations that were rightly or wrongly associated with AIDS. And instead of abandoning the blood drive, they had a conversation about it. And they learned about AIDS. Where, who has it? Is it treatable? What is the public health issue? It's an onion peeling exercise, you know? Let's take the, the service experience, for example, that a club can run. Let's study the underlying uh, policy issues behind it, the human, human nature stories behind it, and let's make sure the faculty are involved. These are all political conversations. What else do we know about the relationship between a campus and local communities and what that has to do with student propensity to to participate in voting. Yeah, so one of the things that we have seen is something that we might call stewardship of place or, or sort of a sense of belonging. And I think this can happen either when a campus has robust relationships with a local community and the students are highly engaged. On a lot of our campuses, for example, the students were from the community. They Some of them were very poor and they had been... Uh, nurtured by some of the social services provided by the nonprofits and the agencies in the community. And they had a very deep sense of we want to give back, we want to support our community and particularly those nonprofits and agencies. And, and yet that sense of connection, connectivity to a place can also be just about a campus. And so it's really important that students develop a sense of connection, whether it's local on campus or both. Now, I happen to believe that the on-campus connection is 
absolutely critical. I think we do the local connection very well. I think that's been one of the, the very promising products of the last 20 years of the civic movement in higher education. So I'm hoping that, that we can capitalize that and think of it as an opportunity to build connectivity between a student and the location, because it's when people feel a sense of ownership that they actually take responsibility for the policies, the practices, the social problems of that community or campus. Um, it also connects to students and their leadership opportunities on campus. It's very important for students to start feeling that they are part of something they own, if you know what I mean. Um, I'm not talking about shared governance because that's something that higher education talks about a lot, but it usually is faculty administration governance. I'm really talking about developing in students a sense of ownership of the place and a sense of caring and about the well-being of their peers. So, for example, on one campus we visited, the students were taught from the very get-go that they are responsible for each other and in very positive ways. The institution had set up a lot of structures so that students could report those who are struggling. The institution also had set aside three rooms in the dormitories for students who might become homeless. They had set up a very large room where people donated canned goods and diapers for, stu for students who couldn't afford them. And those things were donated by the faculty. The faculty were very involved in creating this sense of caring and um, it's really, I'm, I'm responsible for you and you are responsible for me and we're in this together. It's sort of the best practices of a learning community, if you will. So those are a couple of things. Those are a couple of examples. It's interesting because I think, you know, I'm uh, thinking of the, the research of Sarah Goldrick-Rab and others on just the proportion of students in our colleges who themselves are facing poverty and homelessness and hunger. And I think part of what you're pointing to is the idea that kind of there isn't some, you know, sharp separation. And we know this, but sometimes we forget it between students and communities, that students are part of a world and that these behaviors of taking care of and being responsible for each other and for the collective good, again, it makes sense that if you develop that, you would also then say, who do I want to hold elected roles in my community and how can we make sure that we have policies? But but it's not maybe intuitively obvious to us. So that's a really interesting link to have found. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think more and more about campuses as mini publics. You know, and that, and certainly for the public institutions and the community colleges, that is not a tough sell. But, you know, I'm a little worn down by the media portrayals of students as, you know, we all live in dormitories, we all party on weekends, we all, you know, we all take classes eight hours a week and then we have a lot of free time. That is not, that's not the real college student today. It, and it, and it shouldn't be. We want to bring, we want to give access to college to students who historically have been marginalized from the system. Otherwise, colleges and universities do nothing but perpetuate high levels of inequality. I think we have to break this down. And one other thing I just want to say, a sort of a little sidebar, is um, our voting rates, you know, are pretty low. The campuses are not voting at very high rates. And... Um, 
One of the really troubling things about voting in this country is that very high levels of affluent people vote. 80, 90, by some, by some studies, even higher. If you are in the top, you know, 0.1%, you vote. 50% of poor Americans vote. That has real implications for who's elected and what policies go into place. Colleges and universities, because they are diversifying, because they are bringing in new populations of students, they are ideal settings to tackle the problems of underrepresentation in our democracy. So I, 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 that was kind of a little sidebar. I guess I'm happy to go back to some of the other things that are happening on these high outlier campuses, but I just want to point out that voting isn't, isn't what we're talking about here. Equity, equality, and making our democracy work the way it should is what we're talking about. So let me move maybe forward, and some of this then may also bring out some more features of these campuses. But mm -hmm. if we, you know, November 8th is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, some people are excited that it will finally wow. have happened. Yeah. Uh, some of us, I admit, as a you know political scientist, politics junkie, I, I could have this go on forever, you know, as, as sort of a sport. But I You're realize... A sad little man. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not necessarily good for our country, some of the things that are happening. So that's what I want to focus on. If... Yeah. If we are, in fact, deeply concerned about the nature of the public conversation, or if that's what one can call it, yeah. leading into this election, and the sense you said that certainly I think we've had tons of evidence that people do not feel they have equal voice mm -hmm. and equal opportunity to influence the direction of our country, our public policies, what, you know, from this, you know, with a focus on higher education, November 9th, what should we be focused on so mm -hmm. that the next time election seasons roll around and, and in between elections, we are doing what we can to increase the democratic character and the participatory character and the egalitarian character and equitable character of our communities mm. and our, our democracy more broadly. And how much time do we have? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we just have a few minutes to solve that one. So, but maybe you can give us some hints. Yeah. Okay. Some hints. Well, first of all, I get a little worn down by the argument that, oh, the government doesn't work for me, and therefore I'm going to disengage from it. Um, there's, I, I have a slide I show. It's an old billboard from the side of the highway in L.A. where there is a picture of the traffic, absolutely a dead standstill, both directions, eight lanes, and the billboard says, don't mind the traffic, you are the traffic. So if you don't like democracy... The solution is do more of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the things I think we have to stop thinking about is engagement in democracy as engagement in elections. It's short-sighted. I think it is partly to blame for low voting rates on college campuses. And I think that the real work actually starts on November 9th. Uh, I'm, I think there's a lot that can be done in the next 10 days or so to the election, and I hope campuses are on it. I think one thing, one little number, again, one of my little boxes, gray boxes on the side of this, is that contrary to popular belief, if you are registered to vote, college students don't actually turn out to vote at the same rates as other, popular, other age groups. 62% of 18 to 24-year-olds in college who register to vote, actually vote. So there's something happening between registration day and voting day, and the something that's happening is they aren't motivated. 
They aren't committed. And you're not going to create that commitment only in the time between the day of registration and the voting of the election day. You're going to do that starting on November 9th. And again, it goes back to this issue of what do I, how do I see myself? Do I view myself as a civic actor? Do I view myself as a person with agency? And again, it goes back to how much are you involved in political discussions about issues and about policy? It also goes back to agency, building agency in your local community and on your campus. I have power. I have voice. I think those are a couple of things. Um, one of the other findings, or emerging findings from our study, has to do with nimbleness. This is really interesting because the campuses we visited are not the types of campuses where they shut down political activism. They are the kinds of campuses where, as one administrator said to me, oh, we just stay out of the student's way, <laughs> you know? I know most campuses have places of, you know, they have departments of communications and everything in the media has to go through those departments. We visited one campus. I love this story, so indulge me. We visited one campus where uh, the students decided they were going to have a candlelight vigil when Nelson Mandela was dying. And they went out, they probably even had these in their closet somewhere, but they got 400 candles. They tweeted out to everybody, this is what's happening on the patio, come grab your candle. One group of students got on the phone and called the media and said, we are doing this candlelight vigil. This is a real photo op because politicians are going to be there. Another group of students got on the phone and called the politicians and said, we're doing this vigil. Come hold a candle because the media is going to be there. That, that shows some sophistication about but how these things work. Total. And it showed how empowered those students really felt. Now, that didn't happen during an election season. On another campus we visited, a faculty member had been terminated, and the students were very upset. And literally, while we were there, an eruption, a, a whole protest, full-blown protest. And instead of issuing some kind of statement, well, we have our personnel policies, whatever, the president came downstairs, talked about the personnel process, the process that they use, explained how these kinds of decisions are confidential, but that this is the criteria we use. The students understood after two hours, and the protest disbanded. But the students got what they needed, which was, we demand transparency. We demand accountability. We want to know what's going on here. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's what they should be doing of our political leaders. So why not give them learning experiences on campus where they can de develop that voice? I think that's a critical, a critical piece. Um, the other thing I would say, and this is probably a whole other podcast, but we have some real serious issues over free speech and inclusion. And this election brought them right out to the deep surface, <laughs> yeah, the, the surface from the deep. Yeah. And they are so palpable on so many campuses, and they're playing out in very different ways. So on some campuses, you can't talk about a particular candidate's statements, particularly if they are antithetical to the norms and values of a campus. Statements about certain groups, women, certain religious groups, you know, people of color. If you can't talk about those things because they are offensive or 
the alternative because you're going to be viewed as partisan, then you're, you're not going to teach your students to talk about these things. We actually have to educate for good political talk. And that starts at the very beginning of a student experience, and it should not end. So on a lot of the campuses we visited, they have common learning experiences in which the students learn how to frame issues, how to take different perspectives, how to talk about them, how to write about them, how to debate, how to dialogue, how to facilitate dialogues. And then they take these habits of deliberative democracy with them into their clubs, into women's centers, or the cultural clubs, or the classroom. And the faculty are so grateful because they then can, if they say, okay, we're going to have a discussion-based class, what rules of engagement or ground rules do we need to set? This is, this is not foreign language to the students. They've already figured, they know what that is. And, and so just talking about talking even though that can be a frustrating exercise, it, it is an important part of student learning. And we have to formally embed it into the learning experiences. One of the things I think is so interesting about your work in relation to kind of the, the history of pedagogy and community engagement, or not only pedagogy, but just mm. the approach, is I think very often the, the sort of getting students engaged in community for the purpose of developing them as citizens is viewed as something that can be done in addition to, you know, the regular curriculum, in addition to other kinds of co-curricular experiences. And what you're saying is, I think, we need to rethink the way we teach inside the curriculum, inside the classroom. We need to rethink the way we build and structure co-curricular experiences that on their surface don't have anything in particular to do with community engagement and citizenship so that they are working in tandem and in, in sort of collectively to cultivate these capacities for citizenship. Right. Well, to me, it's almost a paradigm shift in higher education. You know, we've been talking about the civic engagement, the civic mission of higher education for a long, long time. I think that it has waxed and waned. I think the newest iteration of it really got robust in the late 1990s, and I think we have a lot to show for it over the last 20 years. But it's time to recalibrate. If I ask any group, any group of any size, how many of you think our democracy is working well? I get n no hands or one or two go up in the air. If I say, how many of you think that it is part of higher education's civic mission to educate for a strong and healthy democracy, a lot of hands go up. Maybe not all, but two-thirds. If I then say, is this in your job description, no hands go up. This is in everybody's job description. You know, and it, it is manifest in the way an institution treats support staff. It is critical to how faculty create the learning experiences for students. And yet we can't just say to faculty, you know, you gotta, you gotta go do this. We have to support them. We have to provide them with the technical or the administrative support that they'll need to build partnerships in local communities. And then if we're going to hold them accountable for it, we need to help them with pedagogy. 
I think that the role of faculty is simply critical to all of this. Um, and, I, you know, a lot of faculty may balk and say, I don't have time for this, or I don't know how to do it. I'm not, leave this to the political scientists and the social justice program or, or, the, or co-curricular programming. It, it's not left to them. It's everybody's job. Yeah, if it's everybody's if, if, job. If we recognize that a reason we have higher education is because democracies need citizens, then yeah. I go right back to the Truman Commission, and I know a lot of people do, but in you know, 1947, President Truman said, we cannot afford to have happen in the United States what happened in Nazi Germany. We cannot have demagoguery, we cannot have an uninformed citizenry, and we cannot have the conditions in our nation that allowed for the rise of Hitler and Nazism. We cannot, we have to restate that. We have to say it again. We cannot allow for these conditions. Now, a lot of it is on K-12. I think K-12 needs to be brought into this conversation. I know Campus Compact is very serious about uh, the partnership between higher education and K-12. But let's face it. Higher ed teaches teachers. <laughs> you know, we play a role here. And we also are part of a continuum of what I call pre-K life. Yeah, yeah exactly. Pre-K life. Yes. So we should be paying more attention to this. I also think that higher education doesn't have a very good uh, point on the horizon toward which it is steering the ship. I think for the last 20 years, we've been talking too much about the civic mission in terms of uh, what we do. In other words, we've been saying what we do in an, instead of it being a means to an end. So it's, you know, the Center for Service Learning. Right, is, so what's is the goal? The what, goal. Yeah, what's the world we're trying to create and have we engineered right. these centers and these programs in that's order right. to get there? That's yeah. right. And I think that we... We are missing the boat on this. And I'm really happy that Campus Compact is picking up this mantle, particularly the equity work, because we have to understand that our democracy really has to be four things. It has to be participatory. Okay? we got to get people involved, not just in voting, but in shaping democracy, co-creating it. It needs to be equitable, and it needs to be representational. It needs to be educated. Our citizenry needs to be educated and informed. They have to be good critical thinkers. They have to sort through educate through information. And they have to decide what's the most important issue when I'm looking at a candidate. Now, character is great. That's a fine decision to make. But what about the Supreme Court? How many people do you think on a college campus would actually be able to say, gee, if we go one way in this election, the Supreme Court is going to look like this, and if we go another way, it's going to look like that. I'm not telling students they have to come out one way or the other. They ought to know. They ought to know the implication, and it's not just the president. It's because Congress, of course. Yeah, the Senate obviously yeah, plays a, a huge role. Yeah. So we've really got to, we've got to take, take that up. And then finally... Going back to your really early question about whether people are going to engage in this election, if you don't like the way democracy is working, democracy as in politics, 
not deliberative democracy, but political, the politics of it, if you don't like government systems, if you don't think our system is ethical, if you don't think it's transparent, if you think there's too much money in politics, if you think the system is rigged, <laughs> then it's up to you to un unrig it. Yeah. And this is such a powerful group. There are 19 million students enrolled in colleges and universities right now. They have power. They also have the most at stake. Yep. So I think uh, we could literally talk about this for many more hours, and it would it would continue to be interesting and engaging for me. I know that. Um, <laughs> but I do think we will have to leave it there. Let me just, in closing, could you tell folks if they're not participating now in the Unsolved study and they would like their campus to be involved, what should they do? Well, can I say if they are not participating in the Unsolved study, they are nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I agree with that. I, you, I can say that too. Uh, and I'm I mean, not, look, yes. it, it's super easy. This is not a survey. Everybody needs to understand this. All that is needed is a form. That's it. And where do they find that form? They find the form on our website, which is if you just if you just plug into your browser, NSLVE, NSLVE, National Study of Learning, Voting, Engagement, it will pop up. If you it's Google the, that. That's right. Google it's the number NSLVE. one thing. Okay. And there's a link to the authorization form. They have to understand there are 920 campuses in the study. We have a target group because we're limiting it to degree granting, degree granting institutions that participate in National Student Clearinghouse, which is the organization that has all of the enrollment records. Um, so our target number would be about 2,300 campuses in this country. That means we have a very large number. We have very elite institutions that have entire law firms on the premises, and they have vetted the privacy issues. I don't want to talk about privacy anymore, and I don't want to talk to any more lawyers. So signing up is super easy. It is free. And the data is awesome. There's a sample report on our website. They can go and they can look at all, all, the, all the interesting stuff they would learn. It is a service. We have a very large grant. We're very, very fortunate. It's an expensive project, but it is a service to higher education, and there's no reason why every institution isn't taking advantage of it. Yeah, and it's, it's extremely valuable both to individual institutions, to higher education, more generally to all of us who care about cultivating citizens for the future of our democracy. So thank you for that work, and thank you so much for joining me for the conversation today. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to seeing you at the next, I don't know, Gab Fest or something else. <laughs> Excellent. All right. See you there. Thanks, Andrew. That was a great interview with Nancy. I'm fascinated by a lot of what she said about what's in the water at high-performing campuses, at campuses where a lot of the students are involved in elections. One of my takeaways from that was just that it sounds like what's going on at good colleges in general, right, at, at campuses that are, that are engaging students, doing a good, good job teaching students that are focused on creating that wel welcoming environment in general. That So that's one of the things that I noticed. Um, I guess what did you guys hear in terms of the things that stand out about campuses that are doing well in election engagement specifically. One thing that jumps out at me and connects with, we, we've got some other evidence, um, some of it coming out of the 
personal and social responsibility inventory, which is housed at Iowa State in your your home state, Emily. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know that whether our high impact practices with students, things like service learning and diversity courses, whether they really have the impact we intend them to, is partly determined by whether students believe the institutions they're in really embrace the values that they're trying to get the students to embrace. So if students say, you know, I'm in a college that doesn't care at all about service to the community, then our service learning courses don't have as much impact as if the students really do feel they, you know, the institution is committed. And I think this idea of saying we actually have to think not just about what we do with students, but about how we structure our institutions, whether we embrace uh, community participation and decision making, all of those things have a big impact on the development of our students as citizens, which makes a lot of sense, right? Students are thoughtful and alert, and you can't just tell them what you want them to do. They're, they're going to look for what the real evidence is that, that you're you know, committed to making something happen with them. So that, that's one of the things that really strikes me. I think part of that that you're getting at that she, she said that stood out to me is more about these campuses have deep habits of discourse. Students have ways to be very involved in the decisions that are made on campus, that kind of thing. Um, they get to work hands-on with institutional leaders that, again, in a lot of ways, the ideal picture of our democracy is being modeled by that campus. So that seemed to me to stand out as one of the bigger pieces for campuses to, to consider. Not just specifically what's your program around election engagement, but then how do you do that in your own decision-making processes in a way that helps students practice, helps them feel valued, feel self-efficacy? I don't know. I, I totally agree with that. I think that is, that's also striking. And I think it is, you know, it, it's so easy, I think, and all of us have done it in programs we run or whatever to say, you know, of course we want to encourage students to participate, but I need to maintain control of this thing that I'm doing. And so I think for university yeah. leaders, it's challenging to say, you know what, we have to open things up. We have to let students be part of decision making. And, you know, one thing I will say is I think it's great that students over the last couple of years, especially, have really just demanded that. And where that's been met with openness on the part of university leaders, I think we've seen great progress in in embracing student participation in decision making about institutions. But I think you're right. Nancy's research is showing that that matters a lot in terms of how students think about participation in democracy. And it fits so well with high impact practices. So if we look at AACNU and George Ku's work around that, it's very clear that those types of experiences, um, even outside of political engagement, are good for students. And so this fits really well with that work. And so there's already research, I feel, that is complementary to Nancy's work to indicate that this is the right way to move in higher education. Yeah, and I guess to that point, one of the things she brought up that it has been a question of mine, and, and she was saying it hasn't been answered, is do some of the high impact practices more around community service and you know community engagement that's more focused on, on direct service and that kind of thing. Do those things help students think about broader political engagement? Because what I run into that's kind of frustrating to me is a lot of students who really want to do that one-to-one -one work, you know, they want to help a child, they want to help an elderly person, you know, they want to have that feeling of connection and of making a difference. 
and they're not necessarily making the connection to larger social issues and to involvement in the political system. But I don't know what you guys have seen on that front or what you think we could be doing, but it seems like it's an open question of how much we're connecting the two. Yeah, I think, you know, the... I think it's been a challenge from the beginning of this work. You know, I think at the beginning there was a thought. I mean, when I say at the beginning, 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, I think some people came into this assuming that if we got students doing work out in the community, those connections would naturally happen, that they would connect the work they were doing with public policy questions, that that would get them more involved in all sorts of things, including participation in democracy. And, you know, I think we've learned that's not true without kind of clear and more intentional structures. And one of the things that I guess I would say I've seen in my own experience, but I also think is compatible with with what Nancy has found is that, you know, there has to be more done for students to see their work and the whole institution is kind of part of a community ecosystem, that they're not just kind of going out into the community to do things, that they're there because they're situated in a way where their world is part of a larger world. It's not just a campus that's uh, kind of isolated, but there's community kind of flowing onto campus, campus flowing into community. And again, that can happen with any kind of institution. That's one of the things I like about Nancy's work. You know, she always keeps confidential what particular campuses she's talking about, but she's made very clear that there are great examples of two-year, four-year commuter campuses, residential campuses. There's ways to do this regardless of the setting, but it does have to feel like students are in the thing. They're not just kind of going out and visiting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I guess kind of alongside that, two things, two other things that stood out to me, the two threads I was trying to bring together. She talked about deliberative dialogue, and that's something I've been very interested in, the ability to to de- decide things through deliberative dialogue, but also to be able to have tough conversations, give students experiences having those tough conversations and facilitate that. And then the other thread being how important the role of faculty is, that they are confident and able to facilitate these things. And I think there is a gap there. You know, I I seem to be hearing more and more that faculty might want to have some of these difficult conversations in their classroom, but don't necessarily feel equipped. And so that's something I've been trying to think about is what does that look like and how could we equip them and what would that mean? Yeah, I think that's an interesting kind of agenda question. I mean, I think some of it, you know, there's maybe a story to be told about the increase in specialization within academia, more professors thinking of themselves just as disciplinary specialists rather than as uh, sort of, you know, practitioners of liberal education. But I, I think that that question of how you position people to feel that it is part of their job and that they're ready to lead students in discussions of significant issues. Uh, even issues, again, that they're not, that, that are not, you know, strictly within their area of expertise. I think that's an interesting one. And I, you know, I would think that for us, Campus Compact, you know, along with some of our partner organizations like AACNU um, and ASCU and others, that might be a really interesting kind of conversation to generate. How do we reposition faculty for that work so that people feel comfortable, confident, and know that they can do important work that isn't just about their own discipline in a narrow way? 
-hmm. It would be interesting to see trainings around deliberative dialogue and civil dialogue for faculty to facilitate those types of conversations in and out of the classroom. I think it would be tough for some faculty because we have to allow room for mistakes from our students uh, on their yeah. viewpoints and there are going to be opposing viewpoints. And I think sometimes that's really tough to navigate those conversations in the classroom. But if we're able to provide training for those types of experiences, perhaps it would be easier to do. And I could see state compacts, national compacts, along with our partners, creating a space for that type of training. Yeah, it's definitely something I'm exploring. We have a group in Iowa that's been doing that for K-12 teachers for a few years, um, many years actually, I think, where they're provi they provide a training institute in the summer around really deliberative dialogue in your classroom, in your school. Um, and they've seen some interesting results. So that's something I'm certainly uh, considering from a couple of angles. I mean, for those individual classroom conversations, but also kind of to your I think both of your points as sort of a community service as well. How can higher ed be a convener of community focused deliberative dialogue? How can higher ed be focused on getting more of the local community engaged in conversations about where we want to go from here? I've been working in Iowa with the Human Rights Commission um, for a series of dialogues on community policing. So how can we be involved in you know, getting a broader variety of people to have these conversations about where we go in our community. You know, I would say the um, there are some folks I think who've done great work to help mm -hmm. the Kettering Foundation as an example, yeah. the National Issues Forums and mm -hmm. uh, the kind of materials they create to help people at the local level facilitate high quality dialogues about significant public issues. And so I think in some cases, uh, sort of using that scaffolding at the outset is a really good way to get started and then then it may be that you, you've got the tools that you kind of yeah develop the chops on your own campus through facilitating based on a framework that's been provided to start to dig into some local issues and whatever and, and figure out how to make it work without that support but I you know I think there's other things like I think of the intergroup dialogue Institute at University of Michigan which has a specific focus on intergroup dialogue um, mm -hmm. sustained dialogue network so I would encourage people who are interested in these things to kind of poke around. And there, I think there are some resources out there that can be useful, again, depending on what the particular issues and the particular directions you'd like to go in your own community. Absolutely. I think it would be fascinating as well to see college students working with junior high, high school students, getting them excited about elections, having conversations with them about politics. Uh, because oftentimes I think culturally some of our communities youth feel like they don't have a voice but how can we empower our college students rather than just getting them out to vote getting them engaged in the political process on their campuses but actually working with youth and high schools to get them excited because four years from now they'll be voting age uh, and they'll be on our campuses and so that pipeline around political engagement I think will be so important and I would, you know, again, just thinking about what are some resources, organizations that can help um, Generation Citizen and the public achievement model, which comes out. That's the, Harry Boyd, uh, kind of a product of his um, in the institute he runs at Augsburg College now. Both of those are projects that kind of position college students as democracy coaches 
And those are more focused on working with younger students on issues that are of specific interest in their local community. But I think in the context of the work Nancy's talking about, you know, as Emily was saying, getting young people to be positioned in ways where they feel like they can have influence over issues locally turns out to be, you know, a gateway to voting and and other forms of participation. So I think those are, again, some great models that connect, just as JR was just saying, college students with young people for the purpose of building democratic skills and giving people a feeling of what it means to exercise some power through collective action. Definitely. And I was hoping, too, we could touch on, so, you know, by the time this podcast airs, we'll be at the end of this election season, this presidential election election season. And while getting people involved in presidential election years is important, getting people involved in other years, getting people involved beyond just voting is an even more daunting challenge. I could not, you know, Nancy was saying there were some campuses with as little as 4% of the students voting in midterm elections. I, you know, from the Crucible Moment Report, we know that very few people contact their elected officials or are actively engaged in advocacy on the issues they care about. So how do we take the focus, take, you know, the energy of a presidential year and turn that into involvement all the time? Yeah, it's it's hard. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I do think, I, I mean, right now I, I'm sort of on this particular track of thinking about um, about skills and about giving people the skills to participate in, again, in, in the things that are more complex, really, than voting. And so one, one organization that comes to mind uh, is a group I got to know while I was in New Jersey called Citizens Campaign. And they have a whole kind of their whole approach is about creating opportunities for citizens to learn how to do a bunch of things that help them be active and effective participants all the time. So they have workshops on like how do you get involved in local boards and commissions? You know, sometimes very important decision-making bodies that sometimes can't even find people to fill uh, the seats. How do you get involved in being a leader within a local political party that's choosing nominees and moving forward folks who are going to represent, uh, you know, be, be standing in elections? How do you learn how to present before, a, you know, a local council or, you know, board or whatever to, to move a policy forward? How do you draft a piece of legislation? How do you get involved as a citizen journalist reporting on local um, developments? And they've done really great work in New Jersey and gotten lots of communities to have just a really different tenor in terms of the way students are engaged. And I think, you know, we could think about doing the same thing with students in all kinds of settings, just helping them to build those skills that would allow them to feel like, okay, I can get out there and do something about things that matter to me. And my thing is that those skills, the skills they need, are the same skills that businesses are telling us they need from their employees. I think one of the, that's one of the things I've really noticed is that some of these same skills around being able to work with others, communicate effectively, think critically, care about issues, that kind of thing, you know, those are not limited to just being about civic participation. Yeah, I totally agree. If, if you can get up, make a case for something, listen to others, figure out how to solve a problem, worth it, there's a million settings in which that's mm-hmm. going to be a very valuable set of skills. Andrew, our final segment is Pop Culture Corner. I don't know if you are on board with this. <laughs> I don't know like, how you feel about I this. love pop culture. 
<laughs> but JR and I are digging it. And I, I have a couple of things. Um, I mean, since we're talking about politics, all I really want to talk about anymore in my life in general is Hamilton. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to fit it into this conversation um, because I think it makes a difference, right? How do we get students excited about history, about the foundations of our country, about, you know, why we have the system we have and how that got decided and who decided it and what, what kinds of things were they thinking about? Um, you know, to me, Hamilton makes talking about the treasury and whether we're going to tax, have federal taxes an exciting and interesting conversation but am i alone have you guys listened to it so i I would agree with you (laughs) however i have not seen hamilton so i feel like i only know enough about the musical to be dangerous and so i i agree with everything you're saying i just feel like i can't contribute to comedy specifically on the musical I definitely cannot comment because I also haven't heard or seen it. Although I will say that um, I happen to have been. So I was at a Broadway show a couple of weeks ago, a different one that you, that you don't have to spend three thousand dollars to get into, and um, we were on the street afterward as the Hamilton cast were coming out of their dressing room, you know, after the show, off out of the side door by the theater, and. The, the very idea that the street was just packed with, I don't know, thousands of people who just wanted to get a glimpse of these folks who had just enacted a drama about, you know, late 18th, early 19th century American political life. Uh, that was kind of exciting. I will admit that, you know, <laughs> just seeing people fired up about U.S. political and intellectual history. Uh, and obviously it's more than that, but um, there was something that was really striking to me about then. Well, so what else do we have for Pop Culture Corner today? Well, I just finished uh, reading Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, and it connects really well to our conversation today because it's about a culture and family in crisis. It's a memoir. J.D. grew up in Middletown, Ohio, which is probably just about two hours away from where I am here in Indianapolis. And his family moved up from Eastern Kentucky, the coal mine area for factory work. Uh, Much of Middletown was factory folks who moved up from Eastern Kentucky. And when the jobs left, uh, they stayed. And there's a huge pocket of poverty in that area. And why that is so important is understanding um, this election cycle and understanding how people are seeing hope perhaps in a candidate that may or may not be able to provide the hope that they want, but why they're getting excited and rallying behind a candidate who so many of us don't understand why that's happening. Mm -hmm. It was eye-opening for me just to read this book and understand and insight a little bit to what JD calls hillbilly culture. And I feel like I can say that because my family also comes from hillbilly culture. They're from Eastern Kentucky, were recruited from the coal mines of Eastern Kentucky to come to Indiana to work in the factories. I'm a first-gen college student. So I related so much to what JD talked about in his book, but I've been so removed from that culture for so long. It was just 
a reminder about where we are as a culture in crisis. I also had the opportunity to sit down this past weekend with Gary Young from The Guardian, who came to my hometown of Cowan, Indiana, to chat with me and my father about this election. While we disagree with each other's views, we've been able to sit down across the table and have good civil dialogue about this election cycle. Uh, and that's really great. And so those are my two pop culture things tied to The Guardian and tied to J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, this just kind of opened my mind in a different way. While I may not necessarily agree with the policies uh, of Donald Trump, and I really do not agree with what's happening at many of his rallies, uh, it's opened my mind to why that culture was created. Final thoughts, guys? Election predictions? Just kidding. <laughs> we don't have to do that. Well, I was going to say, uh, usually you can at least safely predict that the election's going to happen and then we're going to move forward. <laughs> you know, I'm not so correct. sure. So, uh, well, if I have a prediction, it's that we are. I think that actually is what's going to happen, despite some of the hype. Yeah, I agree. I agree, actually. I agree, too. And we will all wake up on November 9th. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we'll face some of the challenges that we face today, but uh, maybe we'll face them in an environment where they're a little clearer to us than they were before and a little bit of the conflict that elections mean has passed us and so we can get to work. Yeah, and hopefully people stay engaged in the conversation. You know, again, to our earlier point, it's not just about the election. It's then, then hold that person accountable to what you want to have happen. And stay engaged locally as well, as we mentioned. Yeah. Just don't focus yeah. on this election. Once we move beyond this election, staying engaged in your local community through the political process is equally as important. Definitely. Well, it's been great talking to you guys. Um, we hope our listeners will stick with us going forward. We have some really exciting episodes coming up uh, throughout the rest of the year, and, and we've even made some plans into 2017. So um, stay tuned. See you all next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Hey, Habiba, how was that for an episode?